While this podcast will cover information about how to access therapy and other mental health services, it is not intended to be a substitute for said services. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you feel you are in need of mental health assistance, please seek out licensed professional care in your area. that type of therapy podcast. Welcome folks to Mental Health Quest, the therapist office and beyond. We're here to answer your questions about mental health, including how to access it, what it looks like, Why should you do it? All of the above. And so much more. Hello, everyone. This is Mental Health Quest Episode 7. Yay! Yay! (laughs) I'm Charlene. Uh, I'm an LCSWC. And I am Benjamin Tate's Registered Psychological Associate. And we have a special guest, Dr. Sobin. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Yes, Dr. <laughs> Yoni Sobin, our second guest of our podcast. Um, yes. So, you know what they say, second the best. Um, <laughs> Dr. Sobin is a licensed clinical psychologist trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, which is science talk for let's look at your unhelpful thoughts, emotions, and behaviors and get you some more helpful ones. He received his doctoral degree from Furkoff Graduate School of Psychology in June of 2016 and has been providing care for patients since 2012. Dr. Sobin is a generalist who focuses on treating obsessive compulsive disorder, Tourette's and tic disorders, ADHD, and generalized anxiety disorder. In his spare time, Dr. Sobin is an avid nerd and loves Lord of the Rings and all things Marvel and DC, like the both of us. Yeah. <laughs> he also goes by the moniker, the nerd therapist in New York City. Welcome, Dr. Sobin. Yay! Thank you, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, are you excited about the new series, uh, the Lord of the Rings series that's I, coming out? What is it, the Rings I, of Power? Yes, I am. I'm very much excited about it. I, I listen very to excited. the Lord of the Rings on, on repeat every night to go to sleep. It's wonderful. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. So welcome. Um, and of course, to all you listeners, thank you for your support. Um, if you enjoy our content, Please rate and review us on iTunes or whatever um, whatever platform you're you're using, and so that others can find our amazing content. Uh, also, we're here to answer your questions about mental health, so please send us any questions you may have um, so that we can cover them on the podcast. Or if you'd like to reach out to us individually, you can email us at mentalhealthquest1 at gmail.com. You can also find our podcast on Twitter and Facebook at mhq podcast yay Yay! all right so here we go today's episode is on anxiety we're covering the the pretty um i I, i'd say the more common diagnoses at the beginning here so dr sobin uh we're gonna put you on the spot first first thing we're gonna put you on the spot how would you define anxiety? 
So and I would define anxiety as the heightened state of um, the heightened the heightened state of experience or of, of awareness uh, when you're in a particular situation and and a difficulty kind of being present uh, in in that in that situation. So for example, uh, a person can experience anxiety uh, when they're uh, when they're on the spot when they're uh, teaching their kids how to how to go potty. For example, they might be experiencing uh, anxiety then, or they're uh, speaking in front of a, of a public audience, like like now, I have a little bit of anxiety right now. It's an an interrupted state of flow, I think is 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 one way how I would like to define it. It it's characterized by a whole bunch of different physiological responses as well. Um, so you get a you get your heart your heart palpitations, which is a, l- a little bit different from excitement. You can sweat a little bit. It's it's a physiological state of heightened arousal. I think is it would be, that, that that's how I define anxiety. A, phys- a physiological state of heightened arousal. Uh, it, it can last for a little bit of while, or it can last for a longer period of t- a longer period of time, and that's when it starts to become maladaptive. Yeah, definitely. So um, we like to cover, uh, Dr. Sobin, on here, we like to cover, like, what it actually feels like, right? Because we, we know the clinical version, we can go read it, that's great. But how do we break it down into actual symptoms that people uh, experience? So um, I didn't know if you had one that you would really, that you see a lot, that's uh, something that you really work with a lot. Yeah, uh, yeah. So oftentimes, uh, social anxiety um, is is a very common one, especially when people are being asked to present or put themselves un- under the spotlight. So, like if you're giving a talk on a stage, or you're in a school play, or you're uh, I don't know what's what's another example of something that that someone does in front of a lot of other people, in front of a lot of people. Sometimes going to the bathroom, even. Uh, you, yeah, going to a party. Going to a party, being at a party, going to um, the thing. going to the bathroom. Going to the bank. Okay, that's a good one. Yeah, you can get anxiety going to the bank. That place is full <laughs> of money. Um, <laughs> and, and you experience this heightened state of arousal where your heart beats faster, your pupils dilate, uh, you might, your, 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 your face might turn a little bit red, you're sweating, uh, you're fidgeting, moving around, struggling to find the right words to say what you want to say, uh, any of those kinds of things. So, like, uh, you get nervous before you're, you're putting on a line in a play, if you're, if you're in a play or you're giving a talk and you, you start uh, stumbling over your words a little bit. What would you call it when you're stumbling over your words? Is there, like, a specific term for that? There's no sci- clinical scientific term that I'm aware of for that one. It's just stumbling over your okay. words. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes I have clients, too, that say their mind just goes blank. Oh, that's oh yes, that's that's one also. Your mind can go your mind can go blank, which I, I guess is kind of like yeah. stumbling over your words. You're not you're not mm-hmm. you're not really able to access the thoughts that you'd want to, that you want that a person wants to communicate to the world. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. that's what I've heard is is a lot of uh, heart racing, sweatiness, you know, flush uh, face, um, tenseness in the muscles, that type of stuff. That's the tends to be the physiological response, right? And as far as the um, cognitive response, there's a few things that happen too, right? Um, yes. And one of them you were talking about, you know, losing your your thoughts or your mind going blank. Sometimes thought, yeah, sometimes the opposite can happen as well. Thoughts can start racing and you're not sure thoughts, you which thoughts, uh, which thoughts you're going to say out loud or which ones you're not. You can, you can ruminate and, and kind of get stuck in your own head. There's the, there's the cognitive, the physiological, and then there's the emotional response, which is the feeling of fear, the feeling of, of dread, uh, that, that you feel on the emotional level. So there's like three different, uh, three different components to it. Yeah, definitely. And I, um, I also explain it as, 
uh, when we're talking about intrusive thoughts or, you know, uh, there's definitely a difference between intrusive thoughts and rumination, right? Yes, definitely. Um, yeah, the, what, from what I, from what I've seen, um, the rumination has something to do with what's going on, right? There, there's, you know, you're in a situation, you're worried about something, so it, you can't let it kind of go, you know, oh, I need to do this. I should have done that. I should have done that. What if this happens? Come Those firing. Things, right? Firing. Um, the intrusive thought, uh, the way I explain it is that people just have a random thought that, that all of us have, right? A lot of the times, mm-hmm. um, and it just sticks, exactly. <laughs> right? Never, forever, whatever reason it's, it's particularly important to you, doesn't, the thought just doesn't go away. Yeah, there's, that, that, there's, there's, that is a solid distinction between rumination and intrusive thoughts. A person can ruminate about intrusive thoughts. Right. Uh, you get this thoughts like, oh my God, I, uh, oh my God, I messed up that last line. And then they, mm-hmm. they can't let that go because it's important to them. And so you end up having this process called cognitive rumination where you review and review over and over again and attempt to try to change the past or change the future uh, as opposed to just being present in the moment and letting things be. So uh, I wanted to kind of bring up in kind of conjunction with intrusive thoughts is also a lot of times negative thoughts that are intrusive, right? Where mm-hmm. there's a belief that these people start to give about themselves. They start to label themselves in a negative way because they're already worrying about some mistake that they might have made. So when they're like, oh, I right. made this mistake. Oh, I must be worthless. I must be a failure or something. Right. Like that. I'm such an, I'm such an idiot or I'm, I'm not good enough or no one's ever going to like me or, uh, or any sort of really catastrophic yeah. version of a thought, very black and white thinking uh, as opposed to the areas of gray, which is really a little bit much more reality based. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, oh, everyone's paying attention to the last sentence that I just said. The likelihood is that like, if you're on a stage and you're, and you're giving a presentation and you mess up in one sentence, the likelihood is that the audience is just waiting for the next sentence, uh, and, and focused on that. And they're just present and listening to you talk. They're not actually thinking about all the mistakes that you might've made or the little word slip ups that that you might've made throughout the course of of a presentation, which happens very normally and very naturally, especially if it's like your first time presenting. I remember when I did my, when I had my first presentation, my first like really big psych presentation, it was to an audience of, I don't know, 150 people and it was oh, wow. it was utterly terrifying i was with dr scarlett actually mm-hmm. and and i was presenting with her at, at the acbs conference in ireland and beforehand i was petrified i was absolutely petrified that and it was mm-hmm. terribly and i had I rehearsed the presentation a couple times and i and i did make a couple of mistakes when i was on the stage but the likelihood is that no one's really focusing on that or remembering that they're focused on the information that they're gaining or learning so it, it can it's a very real phenomenon uh that can that can really happen I, I remember i had a couple of intrusive thoughts like throughout that time but for the, like, for the most part i was present but i was very highly anxious and, and nervous I had even prepared, um, I remember as part of the, as, as part of my preparation, I envisioned the scenario where I tripped coming up the stairs and, and I had a, I had a, I had a strategy for what happens if I tripped when I'm coming up the stairs, which was just to fall down on all fours and start doing some pushups and pretend like nothing had happened. (laughs) That didn't happen, but that was actually part of my prep strategy because I was so nervous about how it was going to go. I actually kind of also experienced something like that too. So I don't know if I've told you guys, but the listeners definitely don't know, but I used to, used to. Don't ask me to do it now. I used to sing opera uh, in high school. And I was always, every time I had to like do a recital or whatever, I would be so worried that I was going to mess up or I was going to sing the wrong note or whatever. And, you know, of course, you as the presenter are so overly aware of every little tiny mistake you've made or that you think you made. But no one else really is. 
except for people who know you so well. And I remember I had done a performance and I'm, you know, afterwards I go off and I'm beating myself up thinking, oh my God, I'm useless. I'm terrible. Like I mess up 15 different times or whatever. And even my voice teacher, who is a professional and who knows me very well, she did not even hear those mistakes. In fact, she said I did not make any mistakes. So sometimes the mistakes we think we're making are just in our head, but actually came out just fine. Yep. And that's the whole point of anxiety, right? You know, anxiety does have a use. It protects us from <laughs> scary things. Mm -hmm. It prepares us for scary things, right? Um, I always say to it, you know, it protects us from the lion that's in the bush <laughs> that's going to attack us yep. um, when, in the past. But now we don't have a lion. We have bills. We have, you know, social situations. We have bosses. We have all those. And so we're still having the same physiological response to that anxiety producing environment. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not the lion anymore. It's something more cognitive. Yeah, the, the environment still contains threats and we have to be attuned to those threats. So it's a healthy adapt. A little bit, a little bit of fear is a healthy adaptive response. A little bit of anxiety is very, very adaptive to keep us on our toes and, and making sure that we're, we're paying attention for the right things that, you know, the things that are a threat to our story. And, you know, something I tell my clients is, you know, anxiety in and of itself is not bad. It's when it gets to the point where you're just stuck in it or that you're not able to go about your, your life, uh, then that's when it becomes maladaptive. Um, and, you know, I always, you know, when I'm talking to my clients and, you know, they're struggling with uh, those kind of anxious thoughts of, oh, I did this wrong or I'm worthless or those kind of things. I say, well, you know, the intention of anxiety is to help you. Maybe it's not going about it the right way. You know, it. But its intention is good. And so if we can, you know, listen to it and say, okay, well, what is it trying to do here? And if we can acknowledge that, okay, well, it's trying to protect me. Am I actually in danger? No? Great. And being able to talk to the anxiety uh, can also help people to kind of recognize their own safety or their own security because they are able to kind of address it to the anxiety. One of the therapeutic techniques that, that I teach uh, is the idea of giving the anxiety a little bit of a different voice, like a high-pitched, squeaky voice, like, oh, my God, you're going to be in trouble. Oh, my God, everyone's going to notice your mistakes. And if you can you can, you can interact with it as a, as a different entity from yourself, uh, you can learn to recognize and how to ride it, rise above that. Yeah, I had somebody explain it to me once. one time. They're like, do you want your best friend or your worst enemy in your head with you 24-7? Like, oh, yeah. I would. And would you keep someone around who says the mean things that you say in your head, the negative thoughts, would you keep them around very long as a friend? No, you wouldn't. So, uh, you know, not doing that to yourself and creating that best friend in your head, that can be still be, you know, critical and, you know, uh, let you know when you do something wrong, that's, that's fine. It's just more, it's not beating you up over the mistakes you're making. It's helping you adapt. Exactly. It's like, oh, you, you got this. You're going to do better next time as opposed to you're such an idiot. You screwed up last time. Exactly. Which does not help. It, everybody thinks that'll help. And that's what humans do for some reason. It's the, the negativity bias, right, yeah. is what I've heard it called. Um, mm -hmm. And it all it does is make you want to shut down. And it's like, yep. I, it doesn't actually motivate us. Why do we do that? <laughs> 
Yeah, definitely. Like even on this podcast, I'm sitting here having like a little bit of anxiety. Right. And it's like, oh my god, what am I? Am I saying all the right things? Am I? Am I? Am I? And and then it just goes, am I? Am I? Am I? And then that's how it ends up showing itself. Yeah, uh, you all are going to miss it, but I made a mistake at the beginning introducing the podcast. <laughs> I was like, Natalie, cut this out. Who's <laughs> our, our amazing editor, by the way. We haven't shouted her out in a little while. I'm going to shout out Natalie. <laughs> Yay, Natalie. <laughs> I interrupt this podcast just to say, hi, I'm Natalie, and I'm speaking to you from editing world and post-production. And now back to your regularly scheduled content. She not only edits our podcast, but she designed our logo. Yep, she did. Ooh, what does um, it look like? I don't think I've ever seen a logo. It's amazing. Well, uh, Dr. Tobin searches our logo. I want to actually point out something. You guys are <laughs> talking about the am I thoughts, but there's also the what if thoughts. Like, what if this happens? What if this goes wrong? What if, you know, they say this? What if they do that? And, you know, those kind of thoughts, it gets very easy for clients to get stuck in those thoughts. The, you know, they're trying to protect themselves. You know, they're trying to think of all the potential ways in which something is going to go wrong. And one thing I, I like to do when my clients are, you know, telling me all these potential negative what ifs, I always like to ask them, what if it goes well? That always makes the, makes my clients just stop because they, they're not used to that thought. And then they're like, oh, well, if it goes right, then then I guess I don't have to worry. I was like, okay. And are we even there yet? You know, because a lot of times with anxiety and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but anxiety is a lot of times, you know, living in the past or the future, right? Thinking of all these potential what ifs, while good to, you know, prepare yourself, if you're sticking too much into the future, you're not paying attention to what's going on now. That's correct. Yeah. A lot, a lot of times when, one thing I talk about with clients like who have kids is like, you know, you have all these what if thoughts, like what if my kid eats dirt? What if he runs into the middle of the street? What if he, what if he eats a spoon? What if he sticks his finger in an in electrical socket? If these are all like things that a lot of parents like imagine, Always. you know, happen. <laughs> and like, you know, like well, what if my kid falls? What if my kid dies in his sleep? What if he stops breathing? What if I stop breathing? What if, what if, what if we both stop breathing at the same time? Then what happens? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, I use that as an example uh, a lot of times uh, as like a, a way to help understand anxiety. Like this is this is what this is what worry thoughts are, and they're there to help protect you from these terrible outcomes. But thinking about it all the time doesn't actually stop the thing from happening. Teaching the kids right stops the things from happening. You don't put your hands in an electrical socket. <laughs> Can confirm as as a mom, those thoughts happen on a consistent basis, and I think you just learn to live with them. <laughs> And like yep. you said, teach your kids to, to do the right thing. And then you just got to step back and let them make their choices. Right. Protect them, you know, when you can, but can confirm. That's how I described parenthood to one of my friends who was having a baby. I was like, it's a constant state of anxiety and worrying about your child and thinking you're doing something wrong, but you just have to start to live with it and realize you'll be okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, like if you're walking up the stairs and you're having these, like, what if I trip while walking up the stairs? You're more likely to trip while you're walking up the stairs. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So we wanted to also talk about, you know, obviously we want to talk about what it feels like, but also the words you're going to hear uh, for diagnoses, 
right, uh, yes. for anxiety disorder. So uh, we definitely have, there was a difference between the DSM-4 and the DSM-5. That's the, the new mm -hmm. version. Anxiety in the DSM-4 was just anxiety disorders. And now we have three separate categories of um, for anxiety, yes. right? Definitely. Yes, yes, we do. So there's the anxiety disorders, there's the obsessive compulsive and related disorders, and then there's the trauma and stress related disorders, which uh, as we think about it more, trauma and stress disorders are, are less of an anxiety disorder, more of a, actually a specific trauma disorder. Um, so I'll mention those briefly, but, um, but I'm, I don't think we're going to go into too much detail on those here on this podcast. Is At least not correct? on this episode. Uh, not until yeah. next time. Yeah. Next episode. <laughs> So yeah, so so there's there's the there's the anxiety disorders uh, first, which are things like separation anxiety disorder, um, selective mutism, uh, separation anxiety disorder, selective mutism, things called specific phobias, which are fears of like clowns or spiders or dogs or cats or things like that. You got social phobia or social anxiety disorder, uh, panic disorder. I'll, I'll go into a little bit of detail of. Of each of these in a second the panic disorder agoraphobia and generalized anxiety disorder thank you for that little that little list that you typed up there in advance that was really helpful <laughs> um, each, each of these anxiety disorders manifests itself a little bit differently i'll, I'll start by talking about specific phobia because it's one of my favorite to treat and i don't get to treat it often enough mm. um specific phobia is when a person is afraid of a very specific stimulus that's something like a dog or a cat or a spider uh, and, the, and the treatment for that is pretty, pretty straightforward. It's, it's exposure and response prevention. You just, if someone's afraid of a dog, you just got to get them to, to hug that puppy and then they'll, they'll, they'll stop being afraid of a dog after, after a little bit. I, I use that one. It's very personal to me. My mother is absolutely terrified of dogs and it, it's just bothersome <laughs> in, in, in so many ways because dogs are so cute. A really common one is social anxiety disorder, where a person gets nervous in a social sit in a social situation and starts ruminating or thinking that, about what people are thinking of them. Oh, oh, everyone's going to think I'm an idiot. Uh, everyone's going to think I'm a loser. Uh, no one's going to like me. Uh, and then they get nervous and they're not necessarily able to perform in a social setting, so they can't socialize. They can't make small talk. They can't. They can't. Sometimes, sometimes social anxiety disorder also manifests in terms of I can't eat in front of other people. People are going to think I eat weird. Uh, or I can't drink in front of other people. People are going to be very aware of the fact that I'm slurping or something like that. Uh, so that's a really common one. Um, separation anxiety disorder is usually you find that in children. Uh, it generally does not. It's not. It's not really a diagnosable condition in adults. Um, maybe like reactive attachment disorder, when it's uh, which is a tr more of a trauma disorder. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if a person's uh, in in adulthood, but. Um, you know, so, uh, separation anxiety disorder is when a kid struggles to be away from his mother, like they start, uh, or her mother, uh, they start crying, they start throwing, they might throw a temper tantrum, uh, they might cling on to a parent's leg, like on the first day of school, uh, and sometimes even more after the first day, even longer than the, than the first day of school. And so that that's one that we really mostly just see in children. Um, selective mutism is, is, a, is also one that we do mostly see in children. Sometimes adults can go a little bit quiet. Uh, but selective mutism was when a person has difficulty speaking in front of other people. Uh, they have trouble formulating sentences. Sometimes they, they only speak in front of certain people, but not other people. Uh, actually, the inherent definition of selective mutism is that it's with some people and not others. Some, some individuals have a really extreme condition where they don't even speak in front of familiar people. Uh, so that, that's like a really, a really common one. Usually like, up, you know, usually that tapers away by like age, like seven to 10, usually the, the difficulty, the nervousness around people. Uh, but some some individuals have that even throughout uh, throughout their early teenage teenage years. 
so the then there's generalized anxiety disorder, which is just the general set. You, you can experience anxiety in really any any number of given situations. You can be at the at the supermarket and you can get anxiety, or you could be at the movie theater and then you have anxiety, or uh, you could be walking down the street and someone passes you by and you get anxiety. You find yourself worrying about a lot of things. So my, you know, tax, oh, you're very nervous about taxes, about am I going to go to sleep tonight? Well, am I going to knock something over when I'm moving through my physical space? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it leaves you feeling paralyzed or, or just frozen in place. Uh, a, a big part of any anxiety disorder is, a, is the fight or flight response. Uh, where you where you either either your body is either preparing to, to flee the situation or to fight and you're you're nervous and tense. The last two, uh, agoraphobia and panic disorder, they go hand in hand very often. Um, panic disorder is the sudden experience of panic attacks um, coming on out of the blue, uh, where you're not really sure why you're having a panic attack, but you're just having an you're having an anxiety response, and your body is going to a very heightened state of arousal. Sometimes you have shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, sweating. Uh, chest tightness, heart palpitations. You might feel like you're dying. You might feel like you're going crazy. You're you have a lot of difficulty uh, getting out into the world, and it's it's like a fear of uh, of open spaces almost, where you feel stuck where you are, and you feel like you can't really leave your house because something bad is going to happen if you do. And so that's that's the first category of anxiety disorders. Anything that you guys want to say on on that? Because I just like ran through the list. You you basically just blurted out the entire DSM. Um, that is how amazing Doctor Sobin is, everybody. <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm only okay. I'm like a seven out of ten. Well, at so I do want to kind of talk a little bit about uh, kind of breaking those down a little bit further, especially uh, with regard to uh, agoraphobia and panic disorders, because as Dr. Sopin said, they do go along together. And the way I've understood agoraphobia and is that, you know, part of the fear of going outside or to those open spaces is that the person is afraid that they might have a panic attack in those environments and they would not be able to get away or that people are going to see them having a panic attack and they wouldn't be able to escape. And, you know, so it's, it's not just the fear of the outside per se. It's more the fear of like the outside is scary and, and I'm afraid that I'm not going to be able to handle the outside and that I'm going to break mm-hmm. down. And so people tend to stay in a, you know, perceived safe space more often their home, but maybe their safe space is something different. It could be, you know, with a safe person, as long as they're with a person, yes, then they might be a little bit more able to kind of move around as long as they have that person with them to, to go over just a little bit about social anxiety disorder, because people do kind of mistake agoraphobia and social anxiety sometimes as well. You know, social anxiety is fear of social situations or being judged in those social situations. Mm-hmm. Like Dr. Sobin said about giving his presentation, you know, his fear of making a mistake in this presentation, this professional presentation. And he probably, maybe you had some thoughts that, oh, people are going to think I'm not a good professional if I'm making these mistakes. Yep. And uh, you, so it's kind of the fear of, the judgment or the the thoughts that people might have about you in those social situations, which can yes, yeah, I'm, I'm thank you for drawing that distinction there. Yeah, and just a, another point: there's it's not always in large groups. Sometimes it's you know just one two people like on a date, you know, which yep. dates are scary enough as they are. And then you know <laughs> if you do struggle with social anxiety disorder and you're worrying about what people are thinking about you, going on a date, you know, where you are worried about this person's perception of you that can be really extreme 
Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. It can be it can be in a in a public setting with multiple people around, or it can be on in that one to one. And I'm I'm glad that you mentioned the the judgment piece. I I, I should have uh, I wish I had referenced that earlier because um, it is the the fear of judgment in social situations specifically. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you to um, to kind of talk about, you had mentioned exposure therapy, mm-hmm. right? And I think there's a lot of misconceptions around exposure therapy. Um, a lot of my clients uh, get scared whenever they hear that, that statement. They're afraid you're basically going to, you know, do flooding, which is throwing you in the deep end and going swim, you know? Right. That's not what exposure therapy Red is. water! <laughs> Tread water! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you kind of elaborate on you know, how exposure therapy actually works. I just think that's really uh, interesting. Of course, yeah. So exposure therapy, the basic premise is is what you've said, that, that we put you into a situation uh, where you're going to experience the anxiety that you that you normally experience, and we're going to give you some new coping skills to try to handle something. So there's a, what, I, what I like to call normative social anxiety exposures and non-normative social anxiety exposures. The normative social anxiety exposures are things like going into a uh, if a person is struggling to like talk to talk to people, right? You might go into a store and ask someone, "Where is the where is the milk?" And then uh, you know, even if you know where the milk is, but where is the milk? And you let them direct you to the milk, and then that's and then they go about their day. Or uh, you know, going into the corner store and asking to order a specific kind of sandwich, uh, or going over to someone and asking them what the time is. So those are like what I call normative social anxiety exposures, just having having a conversation with a friend in a public place about uh, about a particular conversation topic. Uh, then there's the non-normative social anxiety exposures, which is which really kind of gets 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 at the heart of the matter. So I had a patient once, and he was experiencing some real social anxiety. It seemed like he was like he looked like he was fine on the outside, but inside he was an absolute wreck. Uh, when he was interacting with individuals in a social situation, he was he was very nervous what they were going to think of him. Uh, are they going to judge him? And so on and so forth. And I remember like one of the breakthrough sessions that we did was we went outside and I said, I want you to hold your phone in your hand and I want you to walk up, walk up to someone, press the button that shows that your phone is working. And then I want you to ask someone, excuse me, do you have the time? My phone isn't working. Um, and, and to say that to that person. Um, and, and they were like, what? My, my phone is fine. Like, why would I have my phone in my hand? It's like, well, we're going to up the anxiety a little bit. We're going to, we're going to increase the likelihood that someone could be judging you in this situation. And we're going to help you walk through, mm-hmm. work through this. And I remember he was very, very nervous and he, he took his phone out and he, and he pressed the button and he walked his own and, and you could hear him stumbling over his word, excuse me, you know, what, what, what time is it? And he did that a couple of times. And by the end, he was doing so much better. He was really able to just do it, to just ask someone what the time is. And no one, no one, no one even mentioned the fact that he was, you know, no one said, wait, you have your phone in your hand. No one said the likely response that someone that you'd think someone, you know, if they were being judgmental would say. Um, now fast forward a couple, couple of years from there. I'm still, I still work with him about maybe once every two months or so. Uh, he's running his own business successfully. Uh, and he's, he's hiring people and talking to people left and right. And he's one of the most social guys that you'll, that you'll ever meet. That's social anxiety exposures and exposures in a nutshell. It doesn't have to be something, uh, you know, as dramatic as that, but I've, I've asked patients to bounce a basketball around the block. Go, you know, skip down the hallway. Like, just pretend you're having a good time and you're skipping down the hallway. But what if someone hears you? Okay. What if someone hears you? <laughs> I'll, I'll be on the hook for that one. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And for the, the specific phobia, I always explain to people, too, that you start off very mm-hmm. slow. You don't start off with, oh, you're afraid of elevators? Here, we're going to stick you in an elevator. Right. Bye. Have fun. It's, okay, sit down. I want you to get used to looking at the word elevator or looking at a picture of an elevator. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and then you slowly work up yeah. from there. So it's it's not a what what we we call flooding, which is you know. So are you in the elevator? Meet you at the top floor. Yeah, yeah. exactly. We're we're slowly getting you used to the situation and building up, and I think that's what you know what you were just saying with social phobia as well. Is it's just slowly building up to that point where they're comfortable enough. Number one, with you, right? Like as the therapist, but number two, okay you're here, let's try right. this, right? And then you, you ramp it right. up. Build, building, building up in a very slow way. I mean, I, I kind of, I'm curious then, so how would that work then for people with agoraphobia where it's, you know, not just a social situation or a specific thing, but it's the entirety of anything that's not their safe space. Mm-hmm. So how would you slowly like increment up to that? So usually you start off with the safe person present uh, and and you and you have that person accompany the person and then slowly they take a couple steps back and they get further away from the person uh, to the point and then working the way up to uh, being there by yourself. There's, an, there's a joke in the psychology community about medications. So medications are often very, very helpful for panic disorder and agoraphobia because um, they, you know, medications like Xanax or benzodiazepine, which we try to get patients off of as quickly as possible because they're terribly addictive and it's really bad and, mm-hmm. and ugh, big pharma. Um, but um, we still, we start off with the, you know, Xanax is the only pill that works without you actually having to take it. Just keep it in your back pocket and you are good to go. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's a little joke in the psych community about that one. Um, but you start off mm-hmm. working very slowly. Um, I was working with a woman once she was an older woman and she was terrified that she was, she was going to fall down, um, which, which was, which she was, she was at, she was a little bit of a fall risk. She wasn't, she hadn't fallen. She fell once, but she wasn't like a real fall risk too much. She was very nervous about it. And that made it more likely that she was going to fall because she got so in her head about it and she would stay in her bed and she wouldn't leave the apartment. She, she wouldn't leave the house. Um, and we had to work with her slowly about like just taking the walker and walking up and down the block um, and just recognizing that she, you know, she's not going to fall. She needs to be able to learn that she needs to be able to learn that, um, and that she can move throughout the block. And because for her, anything that was beyond that it was outside of her bed was really, really dangerous. It took took forever to get her out of bed. She moved very slowly because she was nervous that she was going to fall, not because her body had completely deteriorated. I think we covered that pretty well, right? Um, and do we want to move on to the the obsessive compulsive um, disorder? There's one thing I wanted to say about panic disorder, um, okay. sure. uh, spe- and maybe a little bit about selective mutism. But the panic disorder specifically, the fear is a, is a fear of the physiological response of of fear itself. It's and that's what makes it so difficult to treat panic disorder. When a person is having sudden panic attacks, they become uh, afraid of the actual experience of fear. Uh, and misinterpreted as something catastrophic happening. So the heartbeat, you know, the, the oh my God, the, the heart racing, a normal a normal skipping of a heartbeat, which is a very normal thing to experience, um, becomes it catastrophized into, oh my God, I'm having a heart attack. Uh, and so then the fear response gets exacerbated and it becomes a, a self-reinforcing loop. Um, and so the way that we treat panic disorders, actually we, ha- we encourage people to do things that, that help them experience the actual experience of fear so like things like straw breathing where we have a person breathe through a straw to simulate the experience of tightness in the chest or some or sometimes even just going to the um going to the gym and working out can cause a panic attack and there's there's a there's a difference between a panic attack and an anxiety attack an anxiety attack is a, is a heightened state of arousal um a panic attack is a, is a severe heightened state of arousal where uh, you're experiencing maybe like six or seven different different anxiety symptoms all at once 
uh, you experience the chest, the chest tightness and the heart racing and the difficulty breathing and the sweatingness and the pupils dilating and the fear that you're going crazy and that it all hits at once. And it really, um, it, it, it snowballs very, very, very quickly from there. Whereas a regular anxiety attack is, is, uh, is like what I'm experiencing right now. It's just like, it's a small little blip of, of, of nervousness, uh, when you're giving a presentation and you're nervous about what someone's going to think. And maybe you say the same thing two or three times in a row. Um, or you're like, oh my God, everyone's going to look at me. You're, you're at a party and everyone's going to look at me. Yeah, hey, there's Ben. <laughs> um, so yeah, so there, there's a difference between anxiety attacks and panic attacks. Panic attacks are really severe. Anxiety attacks are usually a little bit less severe moments. Okay. Thanks for, for explaining that. Cause I know that's, um, something that I get asked all the time and it's really hard for me to verbalize because it is very, very close. Yeah. It's just the severity. I actually just had a client uh, asking me about that because she struggles with anxiety attacks that sometimes occur when she's at a party. And so she thought she had agoraphobia. And when talking to her, I was like, well, wait, you went to these parties and you were fine, right? Oh, so it's just this specific party. Why was it? No, well, because I didn't like the party. And I was like, okay. So it was just, you didn't like the party. Mm-hmm. Um, and she thought, okay, so am I having a panic attack? And I was like, well, let's go over it. And I had to explain to her the difference between a panic attack and an anxiety attack. And she was so grateful to know that it wasn't a panic attack. And I, I feel like this is an important reason why we're discussing this on this podcast, uh, because there's so much stigma and shame that people put on themselves mm-hmm. for having these experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why we have professionals like Dr. Sobin to explain to us what they are. And look, these are treatable things. Yeah. You know, Dr. Yep. Sobin just spent a good half hour discussing the treatments <laughs> for it all. Um, and so, you know, you know, just because you have it does not make you a bad person or that you're a failed human being. Mm-hmm. You're struggling and there's treatment available. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're not alone. Yep. We say that That's every episode. Yeah, you're not alone. <laughs> oh, all right. I'm glad. I'm glad that I could jump jump there right in there. Go. There we go. See, you, you just vibe with us. <laughs> all right. So I think we're ready to move on to obsessive compulsive disorder. Yes, OCD and related disorders. That's my that's my specialty. It's my bread and butter. Uh, so the the first the first is OCD, which is and now you know there, there people are saying like oh everyone's a little bit OCD with COVID these days, which is a little bit true, but I don't want to generalize that stereotype. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder is the presence of obsessive thoughts, uh, usually in a form of a what if scenario. Um, and they often, t- it often takes taboo topics, you know, oh, oh my God, what if, uh, what if, uh, I'm, I'm do I need to say trigger warning here? I'm not sure. Yeah, you can. Uh, yeah, trigger, trigger warning. Uh, what if, uh, what if I'm a pedophile or, uh, what if I'm a sexual deviant or, uh, you know, what if someone I care about, di- what if someone I love dies uh, or really an, an intrusive thought is like the person I love is going to die or uh, something bad will happen if I don't do X, Y, Z. And the person has compulsive behaviors that they perform uh, in order to try to prevent this feared outcome from occurring. So, so you know, there's the there's the knock on wood thing that we that, that a lot of people know about, like, oh, you know, knock on wood, something bad doesn't happen. Uh, that's that's technically a compulsion. It's not going to stop a bad thing from happening, but it leaves you feeling a, a sense of a sense of. Uh, that's actually an encanto. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, this is around yeah. the time anybody that's listening to this. Encanto, the Disney movie just came out. 
And a lot of people with OCD are really connecting with the character Bruno because he knocks, knocks, knocks on wood and he has to do it before mm-hmm. he heads into his room every single time. I still um, have to see that one. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Oh, you're going to love it. You're, you're going to love <laughs> I, it. I believe it. So another another piece of, of OCD is what we call reassurance seeking, which is the one, the one of the hallmarks of OCD is a difficulty or intolerance of uncertainty. Um, uncertainty itself is, is, is kind of the nature of the beast. And um, another form of OCD that OCD can often take is reassurance seeking, where a person asks the same question to try to get a certain answer a couple times in a row. It's like, are you sure that da 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 Well, what, what about if blah, 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 blah. Tell me again that 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 and that that can often take the form of like confession com- conf- confessing compulsions where a person like has to confess everything that's going on otherwise someone's not going to understand them um, and so it can be a really debilitating way that the disorder presents itself so if you or someone you know like finds yourself asking the same question over and over again think about the nature of the function of the question as to why you're asking it and maybe try to 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 substitute in a different behavior. Um, uh, I wanted to talk about the character of Tina Tina Belcher from uh, Bob's Burgers. Oh my god, she's it my is favorite. The, cla- the quintessential example of anxiety disorders. I mean, Ron Weasley from um, from Harry Potter has the specific phobia of spiders. If you want to know what that looks like, just look at Harry Potter. Um, yeah. But Tina Belcher with her panic attacks. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um and she gets nervous she has generalized anxiety she gets she gets panic attacks she has social anxiety she's got she's got the whole gamut of got it all. of anxiety <laughs> disorders and the way that they they portray her with animation no less is like phenomenal and and i absolutely adore everything everything about <laughs> Tina belcher <laughs> yeah I know there's somebody on TikTok too that's that's uh getting pretty famous for dressing like Tina Belcher and like going around and like walking like her and stuff and I'm like yes, yes. this is so relatable I and, love and, it yeah we often like hear her inner monologue of like oh my god what if they notice me oh they're totally noticing me they're gonna see they're mm. gonna see okay don't look weird don't <laughs> look weird I think it's it's really great you know that you're bringing this up because it helps our listeners I think to kind of visualize and kind of connect with that experience mm-hmm. um you know especially even for those of us those of the listeners who don't experience this, these problems themselves but they're trying to like understand maybe their loved ones or their right. friends or whatever you know these characters on these shows yeah that's a really good representation of it and look this is how they experience it it's likely that your loved one or you experience it in a similar right. way mm-hmm. um you know, so actually to go uh, back into the whole OCD thing, you know, there's that kind of stereotype about OCD where it's like, you know, cleaning a lot, right? You know, Which is a very, which is a very common, a very common one. It happens, yeah. it happens a lot. Like I had a call from a patient the other week and they were saying, you know, like I can't touch things in my apartment. They're all contaminated. And, and, it was, and they were really, really stuck. They couldn't touch their own things. Like I have, I have one patient, he's uh he he struggles to with with hand washing and he regularly like you know uses too many paper towels to dry his hands and uses too much toilet paper when he's wiping because he's so concerned uh, about there being just you know a little bit of excrement in his underwear or something like that um, and and ends up using rolls and rolls of toilet paper every single week. Mm. I bet the beginning of COVID was not a fun time for him. Yeah. Yeah. Toilet paper in the stores. No, it was not. We, we um, used to go into the stores and like touch all the medicine containers, like as as exposure and response prevention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that actually reminds me. I had a 
uh, client. Um, it was a year ago, exactly a year ago. Uh, I was doing my practicum at a residential treatment program, and there was a client that had uh, OCD specifically with regards to like germs and cleanliness and infection. Um, and so obviously beginning of a pandemic was not a fun time uh, for that uh, client. Um, and it did not help that they had lost some family members to COVID. Jeez. And it actually, and I'm wondering now if this is something that does happen often or is just known to happen that the, uh, the OCD can develop or kind of co-develop with an agoraphobia type response because this client then was so afraid of going outside and getting sick that they wouldn't leave the house. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a residential program, so we were in a house and like they could not go more than like a foot uh, outside the door. Yeah, it, it is common when the when the compulsions are very severe and we would diagnose both of those conditions. Nor I would probably normally just call it OCD and be done with it. Um, I, I don't know if I would dual. I don't know if I would dual label, but it, you know, they, they could have an agoraphobic response to OCD. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, would I would I double diagnose? Maybe I would. I don't know. Um, I think it would depend on the on the case. But yeah, it, you can definitely develop a, a, a fear response of staying in the house to you know because the, the the quote unquote contamination is so severe, or the experience of contamination is so severe that you don't want to leave the house. Yeah, I, ha I have a patient who struggles to leave the house right now. He's still with COVID. Like even with COVID, he's nervous, and he he had it already. And I was like, okay, those like the worst part of this is over. And like, thankfully it's got, it's gotten a little bit better since then. Um, but you can have a really, a really bad fear response um, to that. I was just gonna say OCD just used to, used to be considered more of an anxiety disorder, but now it's its own little category. Yeah. Uh, and the checking behaviors, right? So uh, I had a client who did a lot of checking behaviors. It was that what if uh, it was the what if question and, and they were afraid of, um, you know, uh, of hurting themselves or someone else or whatever. And so they would check, you know, and be like, am I going to hurt myself? No, I'm not, you know, and they would check over and over and over again. Um, they never were going to, they never, you know, were at risk of doing that. It was just the, the constant, you know, like you said, uh, intrusive thoughts of, mm -hmm. you know, what if this happens? What if I did that? What if that, you know, and then they go into the checking behavior. Yes. So, yeah. Like locking the doors, another one. Yeah. I, I, I sometimes do the stove checking myself. Like I'm standing at the stove and I'll just like turn the knobs into the off position. I'm like, what am I doing? Stop this, Yoni. Stop. No, 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 mm -hmm. no, 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 no. No checking behaviors. If the stove is going to be on and the apartment, apartment's going to burn down, the apartment's going to burn down, leave it be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, but that's, that's really hard for people, right? It's, Especially it's when very it's an difficult. intrusive thought. Yeah. It's very difficult. I have a, I have a patient. Uh, he, he used to be afraid of the number five, the color blue, and he regularly didn't plug anything into in, in his apartment. Now he's got a light, he's got a lamp plugged in all the time. It's wonderful. Uh, he's able to wear the color blue and say the number five. It's, it's really great. Um, but he had the, he had these intrusive thoughts of like, you know, my apartment's going to, if I turn the, he doesn't have his gas turned on in his apartment because he's nervous about it burning, about the entire apartment catching flames and burning to the ground. Um, and then, and just, and, and devastating the life of the little old lady who lives downstairs. I, I kid you not. Um, he, he very much cares for the little old lady who lives downstairs. She's wonderful. Aww. And, and he, yeah, it, it's really sweet when you like, when you look at it from that angle, it's like, oh, yeah. But then it's like, oh, okay, there's no gas. Yeah. And so you have, you have a limited range of what you can eat because of what you can cook. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But he got, he has some pretty, pretty severe OCDs, pretty severe rumination. 
So I'm really interested in the next one, the body dysmorphic disorder. Do you work with that a lot? Uh, I don't work with it a lot. I, I have a, a cursory familiarity with it. I've worked with, uh, I think, maybe two patients who have BDD or body dysmorphic disorder, uh, which, mm-hmm. is, which is a perception that your body is is not the way that you would like it to be. Um, and you get mm. dysmor- you get a sense of uh, um, dysphoria or dys- uh, when, you, when you look at your, at your body in the mirror. So I had a patient who was very concerned about um, like any sort of um, malformation of the skin, uh, zits or, or anything like that. And, and it, and it would distress him significantly. And so part of what we did for, for therapy was we had him draw like a little red dot on his forehead somewhere, not, not in the middle, um, but like, you know, just somewhere on his far on, on his forehead and have him walk around mm-hmm. with a little red dot on his forehead to help him understand that people are probably not commenting on it. People are probably not thinking about it too much. Um, but yeah, body dysmorphia, I, I, I don't know too much about it. I know it's a, a real, a real dysphoric sense of you, you can't, you know, you can't really be happy in your body. Um, a lot of individuals who are trans sometimes experience body dysmorphia. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm not too familiar with body dysmorphia. Okay. Yeah, I, I myself have not experienced it too much. I had one client when I worked in the psych hospital that, and I, we don't know really, we, the kind of the behaviors seemed like it was based off of body dysmorphia, but the client basically kept believing that their nose was... Uh, crooked. Oh, when, yes. When it wasn't. And so they kept trying to push it into place and they broke their nose twice to fix it. Um, <sighs> so they, they broke it once, got surgery to fix it from them breaking it, and then it still wasn't good. So they broke it again oh my God. to make it. And so it, they kind of were really just stuck on that uh, or they you know, would think that their feet were too big or, or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah my, my general sense of body dysmorphia is like it's a perception that, you know, like my ears are too big or my nose is my nose is too far to the left. And reality is it's exactly where it is on your face. It's exactly where it's always been on your face and it hasn't moved. Mm-hmm. And it probably, you know, and, and maybe it is a little bit too far to the left. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. And I know it's a, a specialization. Like yeah. it's something that people definitely have to specialize in a lot of the time yeah. um, because of the complexity of it. So I just didn't know if you had experienced a lot of that or not. So thank you for, for, you know, explaining what you have experienced. Yeah. It's just, it's just that one patient really. I mean, maybe there were some body dysmorphia patients when I was on the inpatient unit, but I don't really remember that too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm can be and usually is extremely debilitating because we're faced with visual representations of our face regularly now in this day and age. Uh, a lot of people can get very self-conscious about their look. It's, 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 a, it's a really kind of extreme form of self-consciousness about how one looks. But I can speak to hoarding trick and, 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 and excoriation disorder, that's for sure. Nice. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, Go ahead. All right. So, so yeah. So then there's there's hoarding disorder. Uh, where we're all familiar with the show hoarders, I'm assuming, uh, mm-hmm. or or variations thereof. Uh, and hoarding disorders is difficulty with getting rid of items, difficulty with acquiring too many items, and not being able to throw something away. Everything has emotional or sentimental value. Or uh, you're concerned about whether or not you'll you'll need to use something in the future. So a person uh, engages in what are what are called collecting behaviors or acquiring behaviors uh, and difficulty, and they have difficulty with throwing things away. I haven't worked with a hoarding a real hoarding case in a while, and I kind of miss it to be honest. Um, it, a lot of times there's home visits uh, where you go into the person's home and you help them, you know, learn how to they help you help them learn how to how to discard objects. 
very it's a it's a very specialized treatment as well because um, there's there's different different points where people struggle. Some sometimes some people struggle with acquiring things, but they're able to throw things away. But they they have too much acquiring. Other times they have they have difficulty with both acquiring and discarding. I have the have the manual on my shelf. Actually, I was like, oh, there it is: compulsive hoarding and acquiring. There's the book. Um, then there's, there's trichotillomania or hair pulling. Uh, it, it's a bot, it's what we call a body focused repetitive behavior, uh, where, uh, you, you're, you're pulling your hair out. So some people lose their eyebrows or their eyelashes. They, they pluck, they pluck them out, um, when they get nervous. Uh, and then people as some, some, and the, the real threat with trichotill, with trichotillomania, actually, I'm, 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 I'm assuming you guys are both aware of this, but for our listeners, <laughs> Uh, the real threat with trick is uh, a lot of sometimes people eat the hair in order to hide the evidence that they've been pulling them out. Yeah. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. uh, actually really dangerous because you can develop what's called a bizarre if, if, or a bizarre. I don't know. I don't know. Tech- bizarre. Yeah, bizarre, which bizarre. is a stone in the stomach that, that gets because hair is one of those things that's not digestible by, yeah. by the stomach acid. Um, and so just like in Harry Potter, where you can get the, the bezoar from the, 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 the stone from the stomach of a goat, uh, you can also get one in a human and it's very dangerous. Um, so, but this one will not cure you from most poisons, unlike the one in Harry correct. Potter. Correct. will <laughs> probably poison you. Exactly. <laughs> um, so trick is a, is a disorder where people pull out their hair compulsively, uh, as a, as a, as a form of, in a form of anxiety. And, uh, then they, so oftentimes they try to hide it or they pull from specific, uh, areas in their body, which are normally hidden, like an armpit or your, or the, or the nether regions. Um, or just, uh, sometimes like, uh, you wear a hat and you wear a hat to cover it up. My, my brother struggled with it with, uh, with trick for a little bit of while he would, he would pluck out his, uh, his eyelashes. Um, mm-hmm. I, I myself struggle with, and, and then there's a related, uh, a related disorder called excoriation disorder or dermatillomania. Uh, which is skin picking, um, where a person picks at certain certain areas of the skin because it doesn't look right. They scan, you know, they maybe they touch some different areas of the skin. I, I personally struggle with that myself. Mm. Here's my thumbs, and look, 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 they're all they're all picky. And there's a regular a regular uh, sequence of events where you, where you scan for the, the 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 area of the body that you're looking to pick from. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a self-soothing behavior that's, that's very mm-hmm. maladaptive, um, because it ruins the skin, but then you pick more to try to fix the thing that's ruined. Uh, but then it ends up causing more distress and, and more of a, more, more damage to the skin. Um, when I was younger, I struggled with it. I would pick out my freckles cause I thought that they were, they shouldn't be there. Uh, so I would mm-hmm. like dig into, I would dig into my, into my arm to try to get rid of freckles. The, the standard treatment for all of this is exposure and response prevention, uh, again, like exposure to the, the stimulus and, and prevent and creating a different response set, uh, than the one that you typically engage in. Ben, did you have anything? Um, no, um, I think we covered a lot of yeah. information. This, this episode is just jam packed with information. Jam packed. If you have any questions, obviously, you know, email us and we can get the answers. So we, we did mention trauma and stressor related disorders. We're going to actually cover that um, in our next episode. Um, stay tuned. With Yeah. Yes. Stay tuned for our next episode. We're very excited. So um, I think we have kind of gone through each, each time we were talking about um, some of the diagnoses. Um, we were talking about what uh, therapies go with them. Uh, so I don't want to spend too much time on, you know, the best treatments or whatever, but just kind of uh overall um covering what those treatments tend to fall under um what kind of of theory base and things like that so i know we talked a lot about um cognitive behavioral therapy right Mm -hmm. um 
that's the exposure therapies under that, right? Yeah, exposure, exposure therapy is, is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy, just in short, is taking a, is addressing the cognitive and the behavioral responses in an attempt to change emotion. Uh, so you do things like thought logs, where you write down different thoughts that go through your head, challenge some of the black and white thinking in them. Uh, you know, like for social anxiety, you know, no one's going to like me. Well, maybe it's not that no one's going to like you. Maybe just a couple of people won't like you and that's okay. And other people will like you. Um, and so, it's, it, you know, removing the black and whiteness of those thoughts and massaging them into an area of gray, changing some of the behavioral responses. So instead of avoiding parties that you go to a small party and you, you have a good time with some friends or you have a, you, you sell, you know, you, you hang out with some friends uh, as opposed to avoiding uh, specifically exposure and response prevention is the is the gold standard of treatment for OCD uh, when it comes to like, you know, intrusive thoughts. And when we have people draw out their worst case scenarios you know, with that, that patient I was mentioning before with the little old lady downstairs, like we I literally we like we worked together and we drew a picture of the entire apartment burning down. Uh, with a little old lady trapped inside the building. And it was like, it was like, it was a really anxiety provoking experience for him, but it was, yeah, that's the exposure and response tension. It sounds kind of scary, but it's, but it's really helpful. Yeah. And cognitive behavioral therapy tends to be, I think we may have said this last time too, tends to be a pretty (laughs) umbrella term for a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah, It's used for a lot of different kinds of uh, disorders and diagnoses. Yeah. And I, um, I like, uh, rational emotive behavioral therapy. I'd had a training on it. Um, and it's basically what you were talking about. Dr. Sobin is going through and tracking, um, you know, the ABCs, which is the event, the thoughts that, uh, occur and then the feelings and behaviors as a result. And then you do the, 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 they, they have specifically three questions. It's, is it based in reality? Is it helping you feel the way you want to feel? Is it helping you reach your goals? And if the answer is no, and it's an unproductive thought, we have to replace it with something else. So I love teaching that one because it's very concrete and people can do that on their own, right? So it's definitely useful. Yeah. One thing I do with clients in that kind of regard is, you know, when you're saying challenging those thoughts, I like to to teach my clients about putting the thought on trial. You know, imagine you're in this courtroom drama or whatever. Okay, well, so in a courtroom, you have to have evidence to support your statement or to support that that witness or whatever. And so the negative thought that, oh, you know, this bad thing is going to happen. Okay, well, is there precedent for that? Is there evidence to support that statement? No. But is there evidence against it that you will actually be fine? Well, yeah, because I've been to these parties before and I was fine. Great. So then that evidence is now, you know, lost its validity. It's lost its weight because you've just disproven it in court. Yeah. And you have to do that over and over and over and over. Yeah. We just, I don't want you to be like, Oh, they just said I have to do this thing and then I'll be all better. No, it's, it takes a whole heck of a lot of practice, but you can get there. You can get there. Um, and, and again, I'm going to, you all love how I know how I love my neuroplasticity. You are creating that new neural pathway and the brain does not want to do it because that's more work. Yes. So when you feel like you're lying to yourself or the therapist is lying to you or, you know, it's just not true what that replacement thought that you're trying to use, that means you're making progress because that's cognitive dissonance and that means you're changing that neural pathway. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I love my, my neuroplasticity. It's, it's, a, it's, yes. it's a pretty solid theory. <laughs> Well, a a lot of clients actually kind of like, they like that, that it's a thing um, because it 
to kind of tell them, look, you have the ability to change the physical structure of your brain. Mm -hmm. Like that's control. That's power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. And so a lot of clients that struggle with anxiety, these negative beliefs, and they feel like they're never going to get done, you know, be done with these things. No, you can, and you can actually physically change your brain. So yeah. that way you have these more positive thoughts, yep. you know, more adaptive behaviors. Definitely. It just takes practice. It takes time. Anything worth having, you know, it takes time and practice. Yep. And then we have, we have ACT. Uh, I think we've talked about that a lot too. Uh, ACT, sorry, ACT acceptance and commitment therapy. I, I said this, I think last time too, I've always used this, but now there's formal training for it out there. Maybe I'll go seek it out, but it's just basically what we were talking about. No judgment, right? Like you you have these thoughts, you have these things that are happening, you know, trying to learn how to not judge and kind of accept what your reality is at the moment and try and take action to, to move on from that. Um, Benjamin, I know you use it a lot as well. Yeah. And, and that's basically it. it's, you know, okay, we just need to, it, it's a lot of kind of validation at first, you know, okay, you are feeling anxious. That is okay. You are allowed to be anxious. But now that we know that we're anxious, let's, you know, identify what is, you know, the thing that we want in our life. We want to not be anxious. Okay. So we take these committed actions or those behavioral changes, you know, to, to live in line with that value, to live in line with that ideal, you know, version of ourselves mm -hmm. um but also you know one thing I, I was talking about with the client is you know some people you know they they struggle with accepting their emotions so much that they put on this mask of being fine right you know everyone puts them okay wait you have this mask are you wearing the mask or are you just hiding behind it mm -hmm. and the difference between that is people who hide behind the mask they're not really incorporating it into themselves but if you put the mask on and actually look through the eye holes, then you can start to, you know, behave in a way that's in line with that mask. The mask is someone who's not anxious. So let's put on the mask and let's learn how to be not anxious. Like Batman. <laughs> exactly. Put on the mask. Um, you know. But it's, I think it's a really uh, interesting way to kind of look at it. And that's part of to, it. To become that character who isn't anxious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And um, the, that that's one reason why the nerdy stuff that we talked about is so great because people, you know, have this connection to these characters. Like we were talking about, uh, you know, Ron from Harry Potter and Tina, Tina Belcher, Tina, Tina, yeah. Tina you know, people have this connection to these characters because they're like us. You know, this person's afraid of spiders too. Oh my gosh, me too. But even Ron with his intense fear of spiders still realized it was important to him to stick by Harry's side and go into the forest. Mm -hmm. Spoiler alert, if anyone hasn't read or seen <laughs> Chamber of Secrets, he, he, you know, he was still afraid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the, that's the thing about bravery. Bravery is not the absence of fear. It's acting because you're afraid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're still afraid, but you still do it because it's important to you. Mm -hmm. So we covered a lot in this uh, episode. As I said, it was jam-packed, strawberry jam, raspberry jam. I don't know. It's all delicious. <laughs> um, but I wanted to thank Dr. Sobin for taking the time and meeting with us. We really did appreciate having his expertise on our episode. Definitely. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was a great opportunity to chat a little bit and, uh, and, and disseminate some information out there. Thank you for, for having me and 
and hosting and, and getting this podcast together. You're welcome. And you all listeners, you're welcome too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, next week we'll, uh, or next, not next week, sorry. Uh, next podcast we'll be covering, like we said, specifically PTSD with uh, Dr. Scarlett. I'm excited. I was going to say, it sounds like you two know her way better than I do, but I'm excited to get to know her. He's great. Yes. <laughs> Um, so we usually like to do the outro, uh, where we can find each other, um, on Instagram and, and stuff like that. Where can we find you, Dr. Sobin? So on Instagram, you can find me at nerd underscore therapist on Facebook. It's at nerd psychology and on Twitch when I am streaming, uh, which is, uh, maybe, maybe like once every other week right now, hopefully we'll do that a little bit more often. Uh, it's at the nerd therapist. Awesome. And of course, you can find me, Charlene, at Nat20Therapy on both Facebook and Twitter, and Trueform Unseen on TikTok. <laughs> Benjamin? And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at My Hero Therapy. That is another podcast that I'm trying to get off the ground. Uh, we do have one episode out, um, and hopefully we'll have another couple episodes coming out shortly, so please stay tuned. But My Hero Therapy, at My Hero Therapy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Awesome. Thank you, everybody. And we will see you later. Bye. Bye. Please take care of yourselves and make today amazing. Mm-hmm.